New Photic Realm announcement. Uh, submission windows for upcoming issues. Issue 10, the theme is justice. That's hard-boiled fiction with a supernatural twist. The deadline for that will be April 1st, 2020. Issue 11, the theme is kaiju. Giant monsters terrorizing civilization. Deadline will be October 1st, 2020 for those stories. Issue 12, the theme is lycanthropy, which is, of course, self-explanatory. Um, it can be any type of animorph with a bloody twist. Uh, so I guess that's werewolves and Jesus, giant, I don't know. What do people turn into? Seals? I've just got a little seal on my desk, so I thought of that. I don't know. You have to be more imaginative than I just was. Uh, but the deadline for lycanthropy, January 1st, 2021. Good luck to everyone submitting. This episode is Sam Richard, author most recently of Sabbath of the Fox Devils. It's a novella out with Weird Punk Books. He's also started a podcast uh, about creativity and grief and the way those two interact. Uh, and so, first is a chat with uh, Sam on losing the plot, and then you can hear our chat continued on the Memento Mori podcast, Sam's new podcast. Uh, afterwards, where Sam interviews me. Uh, we had a great chat as always. It's always a pleasure talking to Sam. Such a lovely guy, such a great book. Hope you'll check it out. Uh, if you would like to be on the show, if you want to tell me something about the show, you can always do so using losingtheplotpodcast at gmail.com. And I look forward to hearing from you. That's all my intro chat. So here is my conversation with Sam. Uh, yeah, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing I'm doing okay, you know. Shit's mm. real weird. Like the world's real weird and so I'm sure like everybody it's like things are just real bizarre right now. Uh, how are you? Yeah, good. I've been yeah, I've been indoors for like 5 weeks, 5 6 weeks something like that. Oh, but it's great. I just don't see any colleagues. I just get to work from home. Uh-huh. Don't have to have lunch with anyone. Uh-huh. No like the small talk is just ah, oh, there's almost no small talk anymore. It's just lovely. It's the type of word I want to live in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> unfortunate it had to come to this. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I had a realization uh, the other day. So I like I I got laid off from my job, but permanently, uh, with like 46 days ago or something. It was like right at the end of March. Okay. March and. Uh, I haven't been able to write at all in this period. Or, I mean, I think I've done like 500 words one day. I just can't, I can't like find it right now. And 
I was like driving the other day and I, it kind of hit me that the last time I didn't have a job was when Mo died. Like I had, uh, I had been on contract for a junior developer job and my contract ended and then it was like a month and then Mo died. And then it, I didn't have a job for like another two and a half months. Like I didn't, and then I got the job that I just got laid off from. And it was just this like, holy shit moment of like, oh, no wonder like things on top of the world being really weird. No wonder things feel so strange. Uh, just knowing that like the last time I was here was when she died and then after she died. Hmm a strange kind of realization that I'm like, why did that take me like 40 some fucking days to figure out? <laughs> oh, I know. I mean, our, our body holds on to stuff in such strange ways. It's so yeah. annoying. It really And does. it's like, yeah. And, and its point just seems to be, isn't this really sad? And you're like, yes. <laughs> yes. Can I, can we feel something else now? Yeah. Yes, it is. Then? Like, I didn't forget <laughs> Didn't something really horrible happen to you? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's strange the way that grief can do that. There's like that, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's so bizarre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have this, when did your, my new cat is running around like crazy, but that's okay. She's just live, living her best life. Um, your, your new book, when did it come out? Is it out now? Uh, It was supposed to be out yesterday, two days ago. It was supposed to be out on the 15th. Mm. Uh, but printing delays, uh, I don't I, like right now, like the printer that I use for all the weird punk stuff is... I think there's a 22 day window between when you order a book and when you, when they print much less like shipping time. Uh, so I had placed an order for the print proof a few weeks ago and uh, hoping that I would have already had it. And at that point, the print window was only eight days and I went to check on it. Cause I was like, I haven't seen this print proof yet. And then it said like, the new one was 22 days. It actually did ship, so I should be getting it any day. Uh, as soon as, if that's okay, then it'll be, I'll be able to like set it up for distribution and then order copies for myself to sell. So any day now, hopefully, but it could also be another few weeks any day now. I don't know. It's it's just such a weird time with, uh, I, they're getting backed up. I know a lot of other people have been having that same issue where the printers are, either just flooded or if because of social distancing like workplace style there's maybe not as many people <laughs> on the floor of the printing place uh but so any day now hopefully <laughs> mm. and uh you've been working on it for on and off for some time right yeah i had started that book uh before mo died uh like that year, the year she died, I think is when I really kind of started working on it. It had been in my mind. I'd been kind of building it for a couple years prior to that. Uh, mm -hmm. But it, I had started it in 20, like early 2017. 
uh, in one of Garrett Cook's writer workshops, and and then I would like work on it, and then kind of step away and do other stuff, and work on it, and step away and do other stuff, and then my and then Mo died, and it was not the book to be working on with all that grief. Mm. Um, I think there's there's like a grief component to that book for sure, but it's more about like my childhood and growing up in a weird uh, kind of extreme religious community or movement. Um, and so I just like, it didn't feel right to be putting all of that, like I'm a widower now emotion into it just because mm. it's what the story is. And yeah. I, there were other things I needed to be writing. So then I basically wrote all of Wallow and Ash uh, and, and after maybe about a, like a year, year and a half after she passed is when I was like, okay, like now I need to like fucking finish this thing. Uh, mm. So it was a long time coming and it, I would think about it like, oh, I should go back to that. I should go back to that. I should go back to that. And it always just felt like really strange and hard. Like it was really painful to return to that story just because she had been like, my support as a and she, i mean she had been my everything basically but she was so encouraging with that book and really wanted to see it finished and so to ha not have her here uh writing it felt almost wrong it felt really it was just like really hard like i had to kind of get over some stuff through some additional in order to proceed with it. So there are a couple of false starts where I was just like, I just like, I can't do this right now. I can't, it's too hard. Uh, but eventually I kind of figured out how to finish it. And mm -hmm. yeah, but definitely took quite a while. <laughs> well, and the book is, uh, the book is Sabbath of the Fox Devils. Yes. And it's, it's a love letter to like campy 80s uh, creature horror films of the 80s and splatterpunk and goosebumps. Yeah, yeah, essentially. Mm -hmm. Essentially, yeah. Garrett Cook, when I was working out in that uh, workshop, said that it was like a splatterpunk take on a goosebumps book. And I was like, holy shit, you like nailed it. I didn't even think that's what I was doing. But it was kind of those two worlds of like growing up reading R.L. Stein and then getting a little older and reading, you know. Barker and Chow and Poppy Z Bright and that stuff and kind of synthesizing those down together into, like you said, like a love, love, love letter of small creature horror, which is mm -hmm. like my, one of my favorite micro genres that doesn't have enough really good entries, but I like love it all the same. And I didn't, when I kind of came up with the idea, I didn't see a lot of people doing that. Like, I don't know like right now if there are very many other horror or adjacent writers who are exploring small creature horror so it seemed kind of like ripe to for somebody to do it so fuck it i'll do it i love this shit mm -hmm. <laughs> and how does your childhood come into it beyond like just these being your childhood uh loves like your uh your religious upbringing how, how does it how did that factor into this story um, it was kind of a way for me to process through some of that, mostly the like guilt and shame, uh, especially of being that kind of preteen age or early teen uh, age where I was like, 
like we all do trying to figure out like not only my place in the world, but like my own belief system and how, how I see the universe in the world. And so in the, in the book, I put a lot of that kind of uncertainty for the character and the like wanting to rebel, but also feeling really bad about it or feeling shame and guilt over things that like no kid should feel shame and guilt over or just like wanting to watch cartoons or whatever. Like when I was a kid, we went through a period of years where we literally didn't watch TV. Like TV was not okay. Uh, like my, my mom and stepdad, they've definitely settled down as I've gotten older and into adulthood. And, but there are some periods of time where things were like really, really extreme. Uh, and I just like grew up in an environment where it was like, because we, so, so we were Pentecostal, like my, I grew up in Pentecostal church. And for people who don't know what that is, it's essentially, if you have a spectrum of extreme Christianity and on the far end is like the, uh, like snake handler, Appalachian snake handlers, and the less far end is your straight up evangelicals. Pentecostal is like smack dab in the middle. So there's like speaking in tongues and people like rolling around on the floor being slain in the spirit, like a lot of kind of old school American tent revival stuff is like what fed the Pentecostal movement. And it was kind of a mind fuck at an earlier age to try to reconcile like, oh wait, like the rest of the world doesn't think like this, the rest of the world doesn't see this as normal like this is pretty mm. extreme for a lot of people even like mainline christians this is pretty extreme and uh there was kind of this refrain and it's like a biblical thing where jesus is like because you love me the world will hate you and that was punched like just pounded into our brains from an early age that like your love of Christ will separate you from the world and will make the world hate you. And so it was also like this built in, you're an outsider mentality, uh, which is really funny because like America is like an insanely Christian nation. <laughs> so it's like, uh, I don't think we're the outsiders, uh, but it, I don't know. I like wanted to put a lot of how that made me feel and kind of pulling away from that and how that made me feel into this, story about small creatures <laughs> well it's a cool vehicle for it do you, do you think that that growing up in that environment is what sparked your interest in bizarro um, i don't know it, to some degree there is um an element of because all of this stuff like horror and uh, comic like certain types of comic books and you know, metal and punk and all of the, a lot of the things that I love because that stuff's evil, it made it really enticing. But on, on the other hand, I grew up. So I, most of the time I lived with my mom and stepdad, but I also would spend weekends and sometimes during the summer, like whole weeks with my dad and, uh, and like his wife and his stepkids. Um, and my dad is, not that my dad is a massive sci-fi fan and a horror fan and so at his house it was like anything goes so 
I, you know, saw, saw, I don't know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre when I was way too young. I saw all of these, like, horror movies, became an obsession at a really young age, but I couldn't really, like, explore that at my mom's house, but at dad's house, it was, like, fine. And I think it was, like, the combination of the things where it's enticing because I can't have it most of the time, so when I can have it, let's, like, jump in as deep as we can and try to find as much of this cool stuff especially because it's like maybe not always necessarily encouraged but it's not discouraged either and that definitely kind of made me be like oh cool stuff like weird weird stuff is cool <laughs> like dark stuff is cool and all this stuff that I can't have is like really fucking cool <laughs> and then as I got older and you know was trying to explore like reading other kind of weirder authors and finding you know Burroughs and Barker and Poppy Z. Bright and finding even like Vonnegut and Philip K. Dick and all that stuff just kind of fed into this stew of like, okay, like weird, weird shit, postmodern shit, transgressive shit like that is my bag. Like, let's find it all. <laughs> and that's what ultimately, I mean, it was really Emma Johnson that led me to Bizarro, but uh, that's why that was so easily like, oh yeah, this stuff is really cool too, because it's kind of mm -hmm. like a of a lot of these things and uh punk music yes as well yeah yeah absolutely yeah that um again kind of that same age like 12 13 that the the protagonist is in sabbath of the fox devils is when i was finding that stuff too finding punk music uh i ended up with a vhs at some point that was like a kind of documentary about British punk I think I was 13 and it was just a lot it was like a documentary that was mostly just live footage of the clash and the damned uh all of that kind of classic bigger stuff and and that helped like feed into this rabbit hole of like oh like what else is there what else is there finding American punk bands and hardcore bands and metal bands and bands doing things where they're crossing those genres and it just fed into the same spirit I think of like a need to rebel <laughs> and an outsider kind of voice, which like I said, I've always, because of my upbringing, I was kind of connected with the, being an outsider. But at the same time, this is like me claiming it as like, I'm not your kind of outsider. I'm my kind of outsider, which I think mm. is like a thing that a lot of, you know, a lot of people go through in adolescence when you're trying to find yourself. Yeah. That's so interesting that, um, you grew up in a family where they're like, welcome to the world, you're an outsider. It's normally like the opposite. You're just yeah. like, guys, I think everything you're doing is not my thing at all. Yeah. Yeah, it's really <laughs> strange. It took me a long time to try to unpack that, I think. In my, mm. uh, in my very late teens, early 20s, I went through a like, like, I am so not about this, uh, I'm, it doesn't affect me anymore because I'm not like, I mean, because there's so much emotional baggage from growing up like that. And everybody mm. has emotional baggage. I'm not special in that way. But I'm thinking specifically about like shame and guilt over like sexuality and, you know, like the flesh, um, all of that stuff like really did a mind fuck on me. And there was a point in my like very late teens, early 20s where I was just like, I'm just like, over it. I'm just done with it. It doesn't affect me. I'm fine. 
And then I think I was like 24 and I did uh, mushrooms and uh, I had a very like kind of ritualistic uh, mind when I do hallucinogens or psychedelics where it's like, this isn't for a party. This is like psychology. Like this is me like letting my brain unfold. And I had a really bad trip on mushrooms where all of this stuff, all of this baggage from growing up super religious came out, where I was like convinced that the rapture had happened and that I had been left behind, as I would as a non-believer anyhow. But like literal fears that I had as a child were unfolding and like coming to the forefront of my brain. And I, uh, after that trip got done, I start. I like started, I took the mushrooms at night. So it was like an all night thing. And then I started coming down as like the birds are chirping and the sun is rising. And I walked to a grocery store to just like get a croissant and some orange juice or something, like just give me some fuel. And I was looking around and like the world still existed. And it was this profound moment of like, I haven't dealt with any of this. Just turning like away from it doesn't mean that all of the damage that's there from it has gone away. And hmm. that led me to like, all right, I have to like go to therapy and kind of deal with this because this trauma, this like emotional trauma from my childhood is all still here. Like I literally would have moments as a kid where like I'd come home and nobody would be home and I would be like, fuck, like literally the rapture happened and I got left behind and everybody hmm. is in heaven. But like I had doubts, so now I get to go to hell. And they're like uh, real. Sorry. Yeah, I. Sorry, sorry, go. You, you, you good? <laughs> no, sure. I, I was reading this great. I started reading this great book of essays by uh, an author last year, Daniel Ortberg, I think is the name. And uh, he said, "You either like when you grow up, you're either very concerned with the rapture." or like not at all those are the two categories of people that there are <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and i that was the first time i'd heard about such a category is when i read about it last year i was like wait that those like films with nicholas cage people are like really care about that <laughs> yeah, absolutely yeah. yeah people are way concerned about that like all the time like convinced that it's gonna happen within their lifetime mm. like and the, the biblical end times will occur. Oh, like God told me it's going to happen within my lifetime. It's something that I've heard more than one person say, like growing up. And so then you're hearing like adults say shit like that. Preachers saying like, we're coming close to the end times. Here are the examples, like things like how the barcode, the big bars in a barcode spell out 666 and all this like really crazy uh, conspiratorial stuff. <clears throat> like growing up hearing that you're like oh this is real this is real life this is all that i know exists and it, it's terrifying like that world is terrifying it took me a long time like even beyond that to kind of realize like wait like telling a kid that if he doesn't believe in your like imaginary or i mean maybe real but probably not real uh sky friend if he doesn't accept your sky friend into his heart or like that they will literally spend eternity suffering in hell. That's mm. like that's child abuse. That shit terrified me when I was six. I literally thought that the devil was like skulking outside my house trying to get me. Mm. 
because that's what we essentially what we were told. Hmm. And like, when was the Satanic Panic? That was like an eighties thing. Eighties yeah, and in like mid eighties, I think, and then into the early nineties. Hmm. And how did that affect you? Was that a big thing in the church? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was less something that our like the pastor of the church I went to through my childhood. It was less something that he would talk about. It was more something that like essentially like traveling preachers who would come and they would like give the sermon for the Sunday would talk about. And there were all sorts of like, oh, this guy is an expert in this. And so he would come and do a whole thing on it and then be outside of the sanctuary, like in the meeting hall, selling like video cassettes about it and books and audio tapes about like all of his knowledge of the satanic panic. He realized the other day that uh, there, there was one in particular, one tape that my parents had bought from this traveling satanic panic, or like, you know, expert on Satanism. And it was called Caught in, a, in the Satanic Web. I actually think I mentioned it in Fox Devils, but when I was, a, like, very briefly, but when I was a kid, I remember watching it with my parents, and it's, you know, super like over the top about how Judas priest is Satan they're Satanists and they want your kids to kill themselves. And there was a kid who had a snake named Lucifer and he killed himself for Satan and all this just like really ridiculous shit. But I remember constantly wanting to watch that because at my mom and stepdad's house, it was like the only window into dark, weird, cool shit. <laughs> and like the whole thing they're saying, like, this is all really bad. But I was like, this is so cool. <laughs> I'm terrified of it, but this is so cool. <laughs> That's wild. And are you, but are you close with your mom and stepdad now? I am. I am. Like I said, they've, they've definitely settled down. Um, and I've kind of always been pretty close with them, uh, even through it. I mean, definitely periods of time as a teenager, as we all do where I wasn't. But uh, mm. yeah, it's we just don't like super talk about it. Um, they're definitely less extreme than they were They're The way that their faith manifests is much more reasonable. Like the church that they attend actually does a lot of good in the community that they live in, like helping people who don't have food uh, or money or like is a thing, which is like, Oh yeah. One of the most like basic tenets of Christianity is helping others. And yeah. so, churches especially here in the states like do not do that do not care about that uh but they like found a church specifically where it's about like helping other people so at the very least like that's way better <laughs> uh but in general i just try not to super engage with them on that stuff i think we just mm -hmm. kind of know each other's stances and don't try to like push anything i mean i'm not like super evangelical about what I believe because I'm an agnostic. And so there's not a lot, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know. Zealotize. <laughs> could be anything. That's my, like doubt is a good thing and it maybe could be anything. Uh, hmm. But so like a Satanist, then I just try not to like push that in their faces either. Uh, just cause I just, it's not a war that I want to fight with my, you know, aging parents. Um, yeah. It's, it's such a tough one, right? I mean, I think that, um, I've been talking a lot about this because I think there's a strange culture here, but uh, 
your basic responsibilities to others, I think, is just to be yourself honestly. And then you kind of implicitly promote all the messages that you approve of in the world. You know, it's like, hey, here's here's meet my cat. I think cats are a good thing and you should look after them. You know, just by owning a cat, I'm presenting yeah. that message. Or like, this is my husband. Would you like to meet him? I'm saying like, that's okay. It's okay for me to have one of those. You know, <laughs> like yeah. it's just implied by the way that you live your life. Yeah. Um, and I think that's also not only... It sounds like a cop-out, but it's also the most powerful thing we have. Like people are more often than not like inspired by one another than told off into doing things as adults. Like yeah. yes. <laughs> you're gonna scold oh good scold. Cheers. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I think was any- doing that wrong. Like what? Yeah, I don't there's any any adult like change their mind by being like shamed into like you're doing this wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Not not in the long term. Maybe just oh Jesus, okay, sure. And then later on, like, oh, that was you're not a good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So just kind of ignore it and cross your fingers, I guess. I don't really know. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> but fox are fox devils a thing? Are they a thing that you made up or are they a thing? Um it's funny because they apparently are a thing that I super don't know that much about. So the Fox Devils came from, uh, there's a, I can't remember the name of the artist, but there's an 18th century etching that I saw online at one point when I, I was already trying to like small creature horror build this story. And the, the print is actually called Sabbath of the Fox Devils. And it, it's a procession of little foxes with, floating orbs of fire next to them like a really long procession of them going like behind a big tree and i just kind of became obsessed with this image like it's literally on the back of my phone case oh lovely that's so cool because i love it and yeah uh one of the last tattoos that mo did on me before she died has the foxes on it too Uh, i'm obsessed with this and so i looked up more information after I saw it about the art and about where it came from. And it's actually like a 18th century rendering of, or like, like kind of, they redid this old Japanese print that I think is from the 16th century that is all of these little, it's more cartoony, but it's really cool. All of these little fox devils in this procession. And I, I was like, I don't really even know what this is, but it's really cool. And I've never read a book with little tiny fox devils with floating orbs of fire. And so when I uh, went to get Michael Bukowski to do the art for it, I was kind of explaining to him what they look like. And we were talking about what we wanted the cover to be. And he was he said a name. He was like, oh, are they? And it's a Japanese name that I've now totally forgotten and several people are probably like, you dumb fuck, it's this. Um, but he said this name, and I actually like had to look it up real quick like while I'm chatting with him. And uh, there's a Japanese folklore mythology creature that are these little fox devils. Uh, the, they're maybe not little in those, but they have multiple tails coming off of them typically. And so mine's like, a bastardization of that because they don't have multiple tails and they're you know it's like my weird 
I didn't really know about this, so this is like my bastard version of it based off a of print, based off a of print, not knowing anything. Uh, <laughs> creation i guess i don't know so it's like half ripped off but in a way that i like don't really even know about it which kind of makes me feel bad I'm like oh i'm cool i'm colonizing this thing but i <laughs> i really truly feel like i made it my own thing. and it, it's yeah awesome. it's it's slightly based off of my dog too it's based off of nero who doesn't actually look like a fox but i was just like this is kind of him you know these foxes are him hmm <laughs> Yeah, well, you have to personalize it. I mean, it, it's funny, like you say, when you're when you're taking these old myths and stuff, it's uh, you always feel like you need to be uh, respectful to them, and to a certain extent, you do. But the reason people would come to you as a writer is your imagination and your creativity and everything. Um, and it's the thing that it's the thing that you don't know where it comes from, and you're just you get it on the lucky days, and then you feel like, did I do anything at all? You're like, yeah, no, that thing was that's the most important part of all of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So the way you bring, yeah, the way you bring your dog into it and everything is is the reason people would come to you as a writer, you know. Right. Yeah, and I I think like when it's a colonizing, definitely as a joke, because it 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 feels like an idea. Like it's almost seems better to not just take something else and use it as is, but mm -hmm. like here I was inspired by this art and like made a thing that's my own, you know, out mm -hmm. of it. That, yeah, that feels like pretty good to to have done that. <laughs> yeah, and the the story, like generally, is like you say, it's a lot more fun than than other things you've made. Is it part of? And I know it's something you were working on for a while previously, but is this like the type of direction you see yourself going as a writer? Um, I think th this feels more like what I would have done, what I was doing as a writer before Mo died. Was it? It's more fun. It's less oppressive emotionally. Um, yeah, that's sort of the track I was on and her death. I, when I was talking to Charles last night, um, I was saying that I think her death made me the writer or like helped push me towards writing what I'd always wanted to write, but I think was a little more afraid to write mm. uh, where it's like a, a lot darker, but like not necessarily dark for dark sake, but like darker emotionally. Uh, in, in that human way. And I feel like I was a little afraid of doing that because it's like some of those stories, I'm like, really, what genre is this? <laughs> like, what, who would read this, you know, just mm. because it is kind of like heartbreaking. And uh, so I think I was on a track before to have it be like a little more fun, a little more like there's a, a the, the dark like the emotions are there like there's sorrow and there's all this like not knowing the character not knowing who he is and having guilt and shame like it all exists but definitely the story is like supposed to be really fun because i think i was just more in that mode of like writing fun is fun and now i'm like writing sad is like necessary <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh, it's funny how yeah when I don't know, traumatic things happen to you in life that they do make you more yourself somehow. Yeah, it's funny. Um, when I first entered the widow, like young widow and widower community, there was a lot mm -hmm. of people who were saying stuff like, I, I'm so different than I was before my spouse died. And yeah. I feel like I'm so much 
more of who I was already before my spouse died. I feel like it didn't make me a new person. It made me even more who I always was. Like all of those things that were a little fuzzier got like really solidified Mm -hmm. uh, in a really strange way that's kind of even like, I mean, it's so abstract, it's kind of hard to talk about, but I definitely had that have had that feeling of like, yeah, like this, this trauma made me more who I was than I was before it. Not a different, Mm -hmm. not a different version of me, more than me I was. Hmm. Do you feel that you've taken on some of Mo's characteristics in a way as well? I, to some degree, some intentional for sure. Um, she was possessed of chill. Like she was just the most laid back person that I think I've ever met. And I want that. I want that to be that. I want to have the capacity to be that. And I can be really laid back, but I can also be like pretty neurotic and anxious and, you know, stressed. And Mm. oh, I mean, especially after like in those months after she died, where I was just a wreck of a human, uh, I would like, I don't, again, I'm agnostic. I don't pray, but I talk to Mo and I would ask her, like, just give me some of that. Like, let me have some of that chill. And what that really, you know, boils down to is like working towards embodying that thing, you know, one of the things about her that I loved. And that's definitely been something I've tried to do is like Mm -hmm. more laid back, be more chill, not let the dumb shit really affect me. doesn't always work, but, uh, you know, if I could make like just decide, like I would to, to be that. And there are other little things, I think. Um, certain foods, it's really strange. Uh, but she, like, I don't, didn't like feta cheese. <laughs> so weird. But she would always, like, if we go out to eat, she'd get the thing that's, like, you know, has the feta cheese on it and is all, like, healthy. And, uh, and uh, I kind of felt a pull towards... Like, oh, like, sometimes when I go out, I want to eat what Mo would eat, which she would mm-hmm. be eating if she was here. And that's kind of changed my palate. And now I actually love feta cheese, <laughs> which is really just a weird thing. But uh, there are little things like that where they're, like, decisions made to be more like her in various kind of absurd and not absurd ways. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's really funny what you say, and I totally relate to the notion of, like, Ah, uh, I have I have stared upon the abyss, and now I shall never be as I once was. But also, I'm really fucking hungry, oh, and I'm gonna I want to cry. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> like there are days when stupid stuff gets to you, no matter what you've been through. Yeah, you're just like, oh, I forgot to eat a sandwich <laughs> for lunch. Yeah. I'm gonna act like a baby. <laughs> there's there's really no cure for that, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's weird. Like trauma and grief and like carrying that with you into kind of the rest of the world and into the rest of your life. Not just, I feel like there's that period of time and I don't know if it was like this for you and either of your parents, you know, when they passed, but uh, for me, there was that, this feeling after Mo died of like the, everything felt like it stood still for a while. And then I realized that, oh, wait, like the rest of the world is still going, even though I'm standing still. 
And then eventually you have to keep going too. Um, and not like moving on, but you have to keep going into your life and into the world. And I think that that moment where kind of grief collides with like, yeah, I'm like really fucking sad and I'm just bawling, but I'm also taking a shit, right? <laughs> like this, or, or I'm eating, like, like these... Mm the mundane aspects of like real regular life where you, where the, they, they, these worlds like inhabit each other. It's like mm -hmm. in any other context, this would feel so weird, but now this is my life. So this, these just exist at the same time. Mm. Have you seen uh, Manchester by the sea? I haven't. Oh, it it's like the best film I've seen that like encapsulates that idea. Okay. Um, yeah. Because, like, it's it's about, like, horrible tragedy, but it's so funny at the same time. Uh -huh. Because, like, they're just, like... I'm trying to think... The, the example I'm thinking of is, like, the, they're, his wife is in a terrible accident and they're trying to get her into the back of the hospital. And, like, the trolley thing, you know, you have to push up the wheels to go in, it won't go up, so they're just, like, flicking it about for ages. And it's so funny. I've never seen a film that, like, realistically put in bits like that or like the doctor's talking and they're like they don't understand what you say they're like, oh, why did he say that what's going on and like i don't know it's you, you'd have to see it to understand what i'm saying but it's the only film i've seen where they've really encapsulated what i think is that idea you're talking about is how like just there's dumb stuff going on with the epic tragedy at the same time yeah, yeah. and that you know i think that um when you're going through especially like again in those kind of early days or those pivotal moments where you want it to feel so or i mean it does feel so emotional but you want the rest of the world to feel that emotion or feel like it matters somehow because then it's like real uh mm. it's funny when it is in whatever weird way kind of undercut by just base pure reality like mm -hmm. i remember when when i buried mo's urn uh, i buried her in the bank of the mississippi river like actually in a dog park that we would go to all the time. Uh, I, I got a salt urn, like a Himalayan pink salt urn. So it dissolves and her ashes would eventually go into the river and into the world. And I buried her the year anniversary of her death, like that morning. Mm -hmm. Her into a bag and I got a collapsible army shovel and I brought the dog to the dog park, uh, like kind of before you should really be in there because I didn't want to get busted. Um, it may or may not have been illegal, but I uh, got down there and like light was starting to, to come over the river. Um, I'm starting to hear other people like, it's the park, like, And so I'm hearing that there are other people around, kind of like deep in the in the woods, and I bury her, and then I'm sitting there, like right next to where I just put her urn, and my fingers are salt chapped and sand chapped from handling the urn and from digging part of it with my hands, and I'm tired because digging like two feet into murky sand with clay beneath it is really hard, especially with a tiny shovel and I'm sitting there and I'm crying and I'm talking to her and I'm just telling her like like go into the world now like be one with nature like I want you to 
do whatever you need to do. And again, like, I don't know if she's here at all. I don't know if she's just gone and death, you're just done, or if any part of her remains, uh, whatever. I don't really even have a super opinion or any knowledge, obviously, because no one does. I don't even know how I feel about it, but I'm just talking to her. I'm sitting there, and Nero, my dog, starts grumbling at me. And I'm crying, <laughs> crying, and he's grumbling. And then I look over, and he's just holding a stick in his mouth. And he's pushing me with his nose because he wants me to throw the stick into the fucking river. <laughs> because he doesn't, you know, like this doesn't, he's like, what are we doing here? Why are you sitting here? He doesn't know what crying is. He doesn't know. He's just like, we're at the dog park and you're not throwing the stick into the river like we do every time. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's that moment of like, I think, I think especially as a storyteller, like as a writer, like I want it to be perfect. I want it to feel the way it feels. I want like truly yeah, yeah. the environment to feel the way it feels. Uh, because that constant self-narration is a, you know, is a curse. And the dog doesn't feel that way. And the people who are like 20 feet back going, what the fuck is that guy doing? They don't feel that way. They don't know. So what do I do? I stand up and I start throwing the stick into the river for the dog. Because that's what you do at the dog park. And because that's what Mo would do if she was here. And, nice. it, you know, it doesn't feel like the the poetic ending of the burial because mm. life doesn't work like that life is messy and weird and and it just things just you know you have to roll with the punches so you throw the stick for the dog so he doesn't start barking at you mm. it's like a it's like cascade of horrible things I mean, you mentioned last time how it was like the one person who could have helped you get through the grief of losing mo was mo herself yeah um and like for for me, it is exactly what you're referring to, which is like I feel terrible, and then I'm going to meet. For me, it's like meeting people, and I was like, I don't even think they're describing the same person I think of. They don't seem to. They seem to be talking more about themselves. Does everyone only care about themselves? Does anyone care about me? Does anyone care about anyone? Does anyone understand anyone? And you're like, do you know what I don't need to be asking right now? It's all those fucking questions because I have <laughs> like, because like the grief itself is enough, but it cascades into just this massive existential crisis yes. where every every possible bad thing you could notice about anything is happening at once um uh, so i don't know oh, I, yeah that's absolutely so real it's so real i mean i really that you just hit me really hard with that like do they even know this same I you back there <laughs> are they Here. talking about the same person that I'm talking about people's mm -hmm. perception of a person is so strange right like nobody ever really fully knows anybody else and I feel mm -hmm. like the closest you get to that is like a couple um I, I even think like like parent-child relationship doesn't get it as well as a like chosen couple gets it uh just because I mean and like a child watches a or like comes to a point where they realize their parents are people, not just their parents. And parents have like have to see their child grow up and realize they're not just my baby, they're a human being. Um, so I think like the the kind of couple relationship is the closest you ever get to like a holistic understanding of who that person is. 
And it is so strange to see other people talk about someone, especially someone who's passed and someone you knew so well, be like, I, did you actually know them? Did you like, really? Or yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe you knew a different version of them that I knew? Because this does not like fully compute with the person I know. Yeah. Another, another one for me is when people are like, oh, I'm so sorry. And it's like, are you, if you're enjoying this one or two percent, that's too many percent enjoying. Don't you dare enjoy this, you know? Just <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> oh my god. Stop enjoying being sorry for me, you know? I don't yeah. I'm not here to provide that. <laughs> I'm very sad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I, I don't remember if I mentioned this the first time I was on your podcast, but I had a moment uh when we had Mo's celebration of life where uh, someone, like a friend of hers who I've never really kind of jived with, like, we're just very different people. And it was like totally mm -hmm. their friends and they loved each other, but he and I just, uh, he's just a different kind of person and that's totally fine. But he uh, came up to me and I, I felt this, this energy there where it felt like he wanted, he was like expecting me to cry in front of oh, him. I hate the expecting to cry. Yeah. Right? He was, yeah. and I mean, I was like, I had cried more in those five days between the day she died and the day that we had her celebration of life five days later, which was my 30th birthday. No, 30th, 35th birthday, my 35th mm -hmm. birthday. Um, I had cried more in those five days than I probably had my entire life. Like literally I had cried until there was nothing left physically. Like I was dehydrated all the time. And uh, there was just, I felt this expectation, and maybe he wasn't putting it out there, but I felt this expectation that I would break down so he could console me. And uh -huh. it literally, like, the analogy that I felt was like, it was like I had to snap a piece of myself off and hand it to him so he could hand it back to me and make me whole. Mm -hmm. and, I felt it so viscerally and so intensely that I just had to walk away. Cause it was mm. like, not here for you. <laughs> I'm not, you know, a puppet for you. I'm not, I don't know. It was the weirdest is a very strange moment, but I felt yeah. in, in like more subtle variations of that definitely felt that thing where they expect it it sounds weird, but it's like I put the coin in the slot, dance monkey. You know, like it's. Like, no, I, <laughs> I remember my mom's funeral. Like a bunch of the teachers that she worked with were like, "Oh, she always spoke so highly of you. Like she loved you so much." And I was like, "Guys, quit roasting me. I'm at my mom's funeral right now. You know, like <laughs> know your audience. Like oh I was trying so because I was like, I think I met you once or twice. Like." I'm already having a bad day. Don't embarrass me, you know? Uh, but they're like trying to offer you a release that you don't want or something, I suppose. Yeah. Um, like the, but it's the, like I don't I don't even have energy for you to be well meaning, you know? Just go away. <laughs> like, cause I, I it's like I don't have the energy to say he's just being well meaning. Let me let him do this thing, although it hurts me. It's like, no, I I have no time for that at all, you know? Yeah, I mean, well when yeah. when you when you're that raw, when you're in that kind of period, those early days period, it's like, no, just no. Like I'm already, I'm already bleeding. Why are you poking the wound? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. 
I don't know that people... I've never seen that talked about so often either. I don't know why. Um, it seems like the most important thing to me because nobody had pointed it out to me. I suppose people think it's rude, right? So they don't, they don't bother... It's, it's that well-meaning thing is why it doesn't get spoken about. They're just like, why go back there and point out that they weren't helping, you know? Right. Yeah, and you, you don't want to feel uh, like you're not accepting their kindness during this time or you're like mm -hmm. a front to these, these, this idea of like they're trying to help. You don't ever mm -hmm. want to... You. You asshole. <laughs> yeah. like, I think it, it comes from a place generally of like good intent. But yeah. we don't... I mean... At least, like in a, in America, I don't know how it is in Scotland or Norway. Um, mm. Like death is a very alien thing. People don't super talk about death. People don't, you know, when they lose someone, it's not. It's like a very private affair. I feel mm -hmm. it's kind of pushed into the shadows, and so all of the nuances of these things are like it's like what do you say to someone? when their loved one passes, like is not a thing anyone talks about. It's mm. not a conversation that's had, you don't learn yeah. in school. You don't learn that in like the, the only people I know who have any kind of decent depth about talking to another person who's had a loved one die are other people who've had loved ones die. And yeah. I, for the most part, that's because uh, I think a lot of people who've experienced big loss not only obviously having had that experience can talk about it, but also are generally pretty aware about how it's different for everyone. So it's not like a, well, I'm an expert, so here's what's going to happen kind of talk. It's a, hey, like whatever it, however it manifests for you, you mm -hmm. know, just like try to be oh, as okay as you can. And when you can't, that's fine. Like that's yeah. the type of thing I hear from other people who've experienced big loss. Like that's what, they tend to, you know, something in that world, you know, because it's like, yeah. uh, just because I know about pretty bad, you know, pretty awful loss doesn't mean I like I'm an expert in anybody else's loss, but my own. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I could talk about it, but it's only my experience and whatever is going to go on for someone else is there. It'll be their own journey. Yeah. It's like you have experienced maybe, the alienation that somebody else will feel when they grieve, but you can't make that alienation better. You just also were there, you know? Yeah. In a weird way, it's even just that is oddly helpful. Like knowing, oh, like other people have gone through this and they're still alive. Mm. Right? They, they somehow found a way, you know, to, to be not as okay as they were maybe, mm. but, you know, to still have a life, to still have, yeah, have good and find joy and, you know, be a, be a good person. And that, yeah. that to me was like almost revelatory. Like I said, I had that, that community, like, I mean, that helped communities of younger widows and widowers and finding them like three fucking days in uh, was like, kept me alive. Like knowing that, okay, there are people in this group who have been widows for five years, you know, who were widowed mm -hmm. in 20s or 30s or 40s, who, and they're still here. And, you know, it doesn't, it's not a crippling affliction for them anymore. It's bad, mm -hmm. 
sucks. It's awful. They miss their person probably every day, you know, but they also mm-hmm. found love again or have figured out ways to keep living a life. And I think that's a really profound thing to like know that other people mm-hmm. live through this. Their version, but have there been any people in the community that have been like have joined recently because they widowed like more recently than you were and you've been able to help them out? Yeah. So one of the groups that I was in, um, I kind of stepped away from for a while and, um, I'm actually trying, I'm like getting back into that one now. They, they switched platforms that they were on and I didn't like follow the migration, uh, but I'm recently signed up for it again. And that one in particular was a lot of like every day there's new members. Um, when I joined it, when Mo died, there was just under 600 members. And when mm-hmm. I left, uh, like when they migrated away, there were more than 4,000. And not all of those people who had joined had recently lost, you know, their person. But there were a lot who had like, oh, like my wife, husband, girlfriend, boyfriend, fiance, whatever, had like died last week. You know, there was a lot of that. And so there's a whole community to be like here we're we're here for you and let us know if you need anything or you know like what whatever we're if you ever need to talk we can share our experiences and whatnot like was a routine thing that happened so i definitely talked to some people throughout that Mm -hmm. um i even there were a couple people who i helped bring into the group who i heard through so and so that like oh like a friend of a friend died and they're so I would like find their spouse, you know, and message them and be like, hey, mm. pressure, I know you're going through a lot. You need a place, you know, for other people in this situation. Um, it's because there's not a lot of resources for widows and widowers who aren't like in their 70s and up. Uh, just be, I mean, that's just the nature of things, right? Like most people don't die when they're younger than that. <laughs> mm. um, so there's not like a lot of, built-in infrastructure for that. So it's these weird little networks. (laughs) Um, But so I definitely have been able to be there for people in those early days. Uh, One of the, like, I'm in a couple other groups now that are kind of spinoffs from that main group uh, who didn't go with that migration to the other platform. And for specifically for one of them, there's less an emphasis on bringing in new people who are freshly uh, widowed just because for a lot of the members of that group, it became really painful and uh, I hate to say, but kind of exhausting to constantly be uh, introduced to new people whose person just died. Um, It's a really hard thing. Like see that every day, like multiple times a day, even in some instances. And um, so I think for a lot of widows, as they, get into like year two, year three, year four, and so on. It just is like, I kind of need another place to go or a place to go where it's other widows who are more this side of the, you know, freshness. Mm. Where it, this is still like widowhood is obviously still like a massive part of our lives. But now we're having conversations about like our new boyfriends, our new girlfriends, our, you know, job changes and like, more other life stuff, not just like I'm very recently widowed. Hmm. Yeah, well, um, you know, the conversation that we had was really useful, really helpful to me at the time, because I remember you saying, 
that you always think you have more time with somebody than you do. Yeah. That's really useful to hear and remember because, you know, no matter who you lose, they you were always they were going to lose you, or you were going to lose them eventually. I know, I know that it happens way, way, way too soon. But you're not dealing with something that uh, was never ever going to happen. And and looking at that side of it can be very helpful. So yeah, it was great that we could reflect on that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. So uh, you've got you're in a punk band, and uh, weird punk is doing new stuff. What 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 else are you working on? Yeah, I, I mean, like, a, I don't know what we are. We're not exactly a punk band. We're like a dark, hardcore metal band. I don't know. It's weird. We, we can't ever even describe ourselves or what we sound like. We uh, we always say that they're we're weird, heavy, and dark. Like, that's a, that's what we got. We, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so I, I do that. A band, we're called Ash Eater, and we recorded a demo quite a while ago and just haven't gotten it fully mixed, and then corona happened and now it's like we can't even practice because we you know everybody's all locked down so that's kind of on it's not exactly on hold hold it's just like well we can't really do anything right now um so but i do that and yeah the um weird punk i just put out the first novella that weird punk has ever put out and it was joe quinnell's the mud ballad who i know you recently talked to uh she was saying mm-hmm. that really good conversation with you uh which is great because Josie is like one of my favorite people she's amazing um but yeah her her book the mud ballad she sent it to me just like as friends like she's very we're very close and uh she was like I wrote this thing a while ago and I thought it was garbage so I just kind of ignored it and then I went back and looked at it like a quite a while later and went Oh, this might be all right. This might be kind of good. Uh, and so she's, she's like, definitely a writer, then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, she was like, "Yeah, can you? Would you mind looking at it? I want to submit it to Grindhouse." And I was like, "Yeah, I mean, like, I'll you know, friends of mine, like, I'll beta read if I have the time for sure, and give any kind of notes, any kind of feedback." And so I just went into it, being like, "Oh, I'm just reading this for a friend to see, you know, see if there's anything I can help shore up." And I read it and I fucking loved it. And uh, apparently, I don't remember this. Apparently, I told her, yeah, this probably isn't great for Grindhouse, but I'd put it out. Grindhouse probably would have published it too. <laughs> but I just, I loved it. I loved it. So I was like, I had already been thinking about, you know, anthologies are great to do. And I've had a really good time doing them. They're very time consuming. And they cost a lot of money to do, um, especially because I refuse to pay less than a penny a word for the stories. It just doesn't seem right. Um, and so I was like, maybe I'll kind of pivot Weird Punk into a new era, a new direction. i am already been trying to figure out what I want to do with it since when Emma gave it to me. It was like where do I want to take this? How do I want to approach this press? And definitely a little bit away from the like explicitly punk music related. And I like love that stuff, but I, after three anthologies of it, I got a little burnt out. And like, I'd like to, you know, publish some stuff that's a little more in line with like some of my other passions and, you know, genres and styles that I really like. So when I, I read the mud ballad, I was just like, this is it. Like, let me publish this. Let, let me, uh, 
make this the first weird punk novella and luckily she said yes and it's i mean that book you you got to read it right uh yeah amazing, right yeah, yeah yeah it's great oh i love it it's like it's joe lansdale-esque but without feeling like a ripoff of joe lansdale it's yeah i i fell in love with it so that's out now um which is really exciting. And then Sabbath of the Fox Devils will be out whenever soon after. And that's the second weird punk novella. And I, the contract has been signed. So I guess I can, I didn't ask if it was okay, but I did sign a third novella for weird punk. And we're going to start working on the edits for that soon. Um, Roland Blackburn, who, uh, who wrote the flesh molders love song for a racer head, uh, I think it was part of the new Bizarro author series last year. Uh, he uh, sent me a book and it's called the 17, 17 names for skin, um, which is phenomenal. And that was another one that I was like, I got to publish this. It's a kind of body horror, really, really fun story. There's punks in it. So it's, it's on brand in that way too, but it's fantastic. So that'll be sometime in the, future probably in the summer i guess maybe fall um yeah so that's happening i'm gonna try to drum up a couple more novellas um and maybe i don't know like i don't think i'll ever be open for general submissions just because i'm a one person like publishing house so more or less what i think i do like is occasionally i'll put on like facebook and twitter and whatnot that People can send me pitches for novellas that they have that are finished. And if I like the pitch, then they can, you know, if I like what it is, like tell just and by pitches, I mean, just like tell me what it's about. Just give me a brief, you know, like synopsis of the book and kind of the tone. If it sounds like something I'm interested in, uh, I'm willing to read it. Uh, but kind of in these like little periods of time where I have the time, because uh, I do want to get some more. I want, I want to, Put out a, a few, I don't, I don't know, a handful of books a year, I think. Um, so that's that. And in terms of my own writing, other than Sabbath of the Fox Devils, I don't know. I have like one short story that was placed last year that's still not out in Strange Stories of the Sea. That'll be out at some point. I don't know. It was supposed to be out a while ago, but there are delays which happen. But I did, I have like barely written this year. Like by June last year, I had placed six stories. Uh, and this year I have written and placed no short stories at all. <laughs> so I don't have any, like, I don't really have anything else that's coming out. Um, it's something I got to get back on top of, but it's been kind of slow going just with everything else. But I did start a new podcast. <laughs> Hooray! Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's called Memento Mori, uh, conversations on loss, grief, and, uh, artistic creation so it's just conversations with other artists i'm sorry i'm totally like stealing what you do in a weird way where you always say it in your intro they don't have to be writers they can you know i often talk to writers they can be any kind of i inspired you i'm so glad yeah no <laughs> so it really it, is, yeah. it really did because i was like that's what i want to talk to writers but i want to talk to anybody who engages in art who's also experienced profound loss and so me that, you know, doesn't have to be a widow or widower, 
um, people who've lost parents, people who've lost children, people who've lost like very close friends or other close family, um, or like collaborators or something, you know, that they've done art with, uh, any kind of art, acting, writing, dance, visual arts, film, whatever. Like I want to, want to talk to people of specifically about how their art and their grief interact and how they use art potentially to grief or help process grief. Um, and we, I recorded the first episode last night with Charles Austin Muir, who's one of my favorite people and an amazing writer. Uh, and we talked for two and a half hours. So the first episode is going to be a two-parter because I don't want to expect anybody to sit through two and a half hours of us talking uh, in one go. But and then you will be the second, the second guest who I talk to. Uh, yeah, right? yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, art and grief, like two things that I think people do not talk enough about, and yes. you're putting them together and you're putting more of those conversations into the world. I think that's awesome. Yeah, I, I think that there's just a lack of that. I mean, like you said, like it, it's not something that's talked about a ton, but it's an important thing for so many people who engage in art, whatever kind of art. I mean, a lot of people are using that as a vehicle to help process emotions, and often loss. Um, and I, I just kind of saw this spot where like, this just isn't, I just don't know that this is a thing that's even being like focused on in, podcasting much less like just general conversation so i wanted to kind of shine a spotlight on it and i think again largely because so many of the podcasts that i have been on as a writer we've talked about loss and grief because that's my life and uh so it already just felt like i've already done this but like how about i'm on the other end and i want it to be kind of like what again sorry i'm just gonna rip you off Kind of like what you do where it feels less like an interview and more like a conversation where it's like, you know, we'll share with each other our stuff. And it was, uh, I think, really important to me that I invite you on uh, early on just because you and I have already had now a couple times like pretty intense conversations about this stuff. And um I think when we recorded the first podcast, the first time I was on your podcast, your dad had died like very freshly, right? Like that had been pretty. I see, I, of course, I had. I don't remember well at all. Yeah. It's like asking me to remember a nightmare that I had about you. It's like uh, I'm going to say November. I think he passed away in. No, I know he passed away in October, but I think our chat was in November. Yeah, I, I think it was pretty fresh. Yeah. Um, I just but, I, I, but, like th these conversations were so it, it was so nice to me like these were good things that I enjoyed in life and and were helping me and I wanted to keep doing them and and I was able to keep doing them you know um so so yeah I know it was really I'm glad it wasn't weird for you you know that's that's rare oh yeah no I mean I yeah I think talking about that with people um I don't know. It's it's like so normal for me now. I think again, even like with the widow communities, when I first joined that main widow community, that widow widow community I was in, um, it was a lot of like we would do meetups or like we all meet at a bar, or whatever, meet at a place and get drinks and talk. 
And when you're connected with people through grief, through mutual kinds of grief, um, just through loss, and that's like the topic that brought you together, there's not really any like small talk. The, the normal kind of small talk, the normal small talk is how long has it been? How did they die? You know, that's the small talk. That's the, the first time I talked to several widows and widowers who are now my friends. It was, so how far are you out? And mm -hmm. what happened? Like, how did your person pass? And it just cuts through so much of that bullshit. And you have this instant, you already have this mutual connection, but you have this instant like, oh yeah, we're like getting right to the heart of it. And it's not weird because it just is. And I feel like with anybody who's experienced that kind of big loss, it's really easy to just, I mean, it sounds weird to say it's easy, but it's just, yeah, like what's it, what was it like for you is a really normal question for me that I've asked enough people at this point, just knowing that we're in a kind of, we've both had this experience that it doesn't ever feel weird. It doesn't ever feel weird to talk to someone when they're still in that state of shock. I mean, I always feel mm -hmm. horrible for them because um, it's fucking hard and I know that feeling. But, mm -hmm. you know, if, if this is a, in general, if like talking to someone is a thing I can do that even mildly, even microscopically helps at all, you know, it's kind of what I've got. Because I can't come in and take away the pain. I can't do any of that. I know too much about it to know that there's literally nothing anyone else can do except for, like, be there. Mm. Yeah. Very true. So, another great episode, as always. That's yeah. me done. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Sabbath of the Fox Devils is out now with Weird Punk Books. Do check that out. Uh, episodes of Memento Mori will be published soon and uh, there will be a link in the description for how you can find out about those. If you uh, would like to be on the show, if you have something to tell me about the show, you can always do so using losingthepodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to hearing from you. But that's all for me for now. So until next episode, bye bye.